people are yearning for that and are hopeful for that. Um, and action is, is one of the best ways to combat uh, climate anxiety. As the summer in the Northern Hemisphere draws to a close, the apocalyptic photos of orange sky in the US are eerily reminiscent of those that came out of Australia at the end of their summer. Record fires spurred on by incredibly dry conditions exacerbated by climate change. That smoke has helped to underline what we've known for a while. Climate change has a direct impact on human health and that impact is only going to get worse as climate change gets worse. Hearing that, you might be feeling as gloomy as those photos, but a new analysis just published on bmj.com offers a way in which healthcare can start to take the lead, both morally and in action, on carbon mitigation. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. In today's podcast, you'll hear with some exceptions, about how healthcare lags behind other industries. But David Pension and Rennie Salas have charted a route that they hope will lead to leadership. Earlier this week, I caught up with them to find out how we go from big talk to big action. So, my name is David Pension. I'm a Honorary Professor of Health and Sustainable Development at the University of Exeter and was formerly Director of the Sustainable Development Unit for NHS England and Public Health England. I'm Renee Salas. I'm an emergency medicine physician here at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School and a climate and health expert at the uh, Harvard Global Health Institute and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. One of the takeaway um, points at the beginning is that you say that uh, healthcare uh, is lacking behind other industries when it comes to decarbonizing. Now, given that we know so much about the climate change impact on health, and Rennie, actually last time you were on the podcast, that's what you were talking to us about. Um, given that we can see that link so clearly, that's perhaps a little bit disappointing. Why do you think uh, that lag still exists? So I think the the first piece is just really understanding the connections. So recognizing that there is a direct connection between human-caused greenhouse gas emissions um, and the fact that that is intimately connected with the another um, health-harming environmental uh, factor, and that's air pollution. And they all have the same root cause, and that's combustion of fossil fuels. And so I think as that uh, the medical community and healthcare providers are increasingly recognizing those connections, they're clearly seeing that what uh, their mission is in hospitals and in clinics is to improve the health of their patients. But yet the very healthcare systems they're working in are actually contributing to health harms that are bringing their patients right back through mm. their that door. And so I think as people are, are recognizing these connections and as there's clearly more evidence to show that there are numerous benefits, not just to health, but also economic benefits for the healthcare system that will also make them more resilient, that people are moving towards um, an urgent uh, decarbonization, just like the NHS has mm. uh, done. Um, but the, you, you do say it has been slower than perhaps other industries. Is there something about healthcare that's inhibitory to that, something about the way the structure um, is set up 
uh, that's that's slowing that move to towards decarbonisation? I think the um, I think one of the issues probably is that we have most health professionals, healthcare professionals, have seen themselves as instinctively doing good. We we are an intrinsically there for good. And to load another task on us, you know, if you're a busy ER physician, you don't have time necessarily to think about every single decision you're doing. Um, and thus, because none of us particularly like change, we never, we don't normally welcome change. That's another instinctive human characteristic. We could always say, look, we're already, aren't we doing enough for health already? So, there is a sort of logic to why we paradoxically, despite the co-benefits that René mentioned, might be laggards because of the famous phrase, you know, I'm too busy saving patients to save the planet. Go and talk to the oil industry or go and talk to another sector. So I think that's possibly one of the explanations about why we've been slow. But because of the co-benefits argument, which René just... Um, highlighted i think we could we could and we should as the paper says accelerate ourselves into a leader not a laggard um for all sorts of reasons um w one is of our size you know 10% of gdp uh one because of the reach the geographic reach um you know 10% of the adult workforce work in the nhs in this country in in the uk um, and it's also geographic reach in every community. And it's also social class reach too. So I always think healthcare systems are microcosms of the societies in which they sit. So if a healthcare system can normalise these actions which we've outlined in this paper, then everybody can. Conversely, if we don't, inaction is a dangerous excuse for others to act less ambitiously. So this whole paper is really about taking um, healthcare on that move from uh, talk to someone else to 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 make it our problem. Um, I think I'd like to start. You've got one uh, interesting graph in the paper, a bar chart of um, estimated carbon footprint uh, across national health systems, and this was from uh, 2016. And if people go to the paper and have a look at that. You can see at the top end, um, there's Iceland, uh, and the very bottom end there is India. Now, obviously some of this variation is going to be to do with per capita healthcare usage. India, fewer people have access to healthcare, which will, will change it. But even within fairly similar systems within Europe, within North America, um, there's a big variation in the amount of, um, in the carbon footprint of, of healthcare. And I suppose initially, do we know what's driving some of that, um, that variation? Well, I'll let Renee talk about the detail because she's a, a lead author. There, there are a couple of things that are sort of obvious. One is that we are nowhere near having perfect, consistent techniques for measuring it. So there could well be some measurement differences. But I, I, but I think, as you said earlier, Duncan, the there's always massive, surprising variation in healthcare, whatever we're doing. And I think you know the the work of Jack Wenberg in the U.S. has highlighted how what an extraordinary variation there is. You know, we don't have the consistency 
that other sectors have, partly because it's a very, very complex business. And also it's a very culturally dependent business as well. You know, delivering healthcare in in Namibia or Germany or the UK or Canada, they're all very, very different things. So I'm not trying to apologise for this. And I suspect in due course, when we get more consistent greenhouse gas measurement techniques that are applied routinely and where the data are collected systematically, we'll possibly see less variation. Uh, And that'll eliminate the variation from the measurement biases. But I doubt whether we'll always, will ever exclude the measurement, uh, the differences that are culturally dependent and the differences that are technically um, dependent. Mm. René, do you have uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think one thing that uh, really resonates from your first question, um, in addition uh, to what's just been said, is the fact that you can't manage what you can't measure. And so, you know, wonder if part of this, you know, lack of engagement in the healthcare system is also just, you know, the lack of recognition of the wide scope with which emissions are occurring. Um, And I think I'm really struck, you know, by the uh, figure and around sort of scope three emissions, which is sort of one aspect of emissions. But as you notice in that figure that there are multiple things uh, that we haven't even really, we as a healthcare system overall, haven't even been able to quantify what that true impact is. Uh, And so I think that, you know, as we move towards um, better quantification methods that will help us to be able to direct an evidence-based path forward. But, you know, the other piece is when you look at the solutions, you know, that itself sort of shows where the wide variation can occur among different healthcare systems, because there are so many different aspects that are contributing to the overall carbon footprint. Um, and inevitably, those are going to vary among different uh, healthcare systems, you know, specifically around sort of the demand for healthcare and in regards to how people are prioritizing disease prevention and chronic disease management, you know, over treatment, over prescribing. Um, so it's again, it's a very complex system, which can make it difficult to tackle, but also means that there are enormous opportunities for us to be able to tackle this. You know, there's nothing harder for me than having a patient in front of me that I don't have a treatment for. But we have the treatment uh, to to tackle this and the innovation. We just need to reimagine a path forward. Yeah. Now, David, you mentioned um, Jack Wenberg and his, um, his atlas of variation there. And um, that sort of kicked off the patient safety um, improvement movement. And that's been really effective in in making change um, within the healthcare system. Um, And actually reading your paper, when you get to, uh, you know, what needs to change, how change can be embedded in in healthcare, it felt like um, you had perhaps mirrored that or or taken some lessons from it. Um, Was that the case? Yeah, I think that we need to look towards examples uh, where people have been able to reimagine paths forward. And I sort of continue to use that because I think in our current moment right now, you know, we have an opportunity to rise from the ashes of the current pain, suffering and loss of our moment um, in order to, mm-hmm. to guide a better uh, path forward. And I people are yearning for that and are hopeful for that. Um, and action is, is one of the best ways to combat uh, climate anxiety. So as we, um, you know, chart a path forward, we want to learn from those that have walked um, paths before us in order to um, rethink uh, systems. 
and again, being able to set metrics, quantify uh, what it is that we're attempting to achieve. Um, so yes, it's uh, we're trying to learn from from different sectors outside healthcare, in addition to innovative uh, previous. Um, uh, opportunities that have occurred within healthcare, and itself. I think the other issue there, mm. Duncan, is that with the with the story about variation and safety in particular, one of the things we've learned about the safety agenda is that before we were doing this systematic analysis of medical errors or variation or safety, it wasn't universally a dimension of quality. It is now safety is now a, a dimension of quality. And that's another path which I think we'd like to echo is that sustainability is an action on climate. It's not just something we should do if we can, if we have a spare moment, if we have a spare health dollar. It is a core dimension of quality. And without addressing it, mm. we are failing our patients and we're failing our populations. So that's yet another way in which we've... I guess we've learned not just from other sectors, as Rene quite rightly says, but we've learned from other similar, almost conceptual milestones in the in the history of delivering high quality healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, sort of on that, you uh, on that auditing, you um, you mentioned a little bit that there is variation in the way that we even measure things. And measurement is so key to, to doing that. We know in all lots of different aspects of behavior change, systems or individuals um, comparing themselves to to each other can can really embed good change. So when it comes to to that measurement, uh, where are we good at that? And and where are we lagging behind? What What still needs to be worked out there? Well, I think there are a lot of places where we, as Rennie's already said, where we don't have actually the techniques and we don't have the data, not every pathway and not every drug and not every operation has been footprinted. Even if we knew how to do it quantitatively, there's a huge amount to get through. Not because any one technique is particularly difficult to footprint. It's just that there are tens of thousands of different things we do in healthcare. But the I mean, one one response to your question, Duncan, is that one thing, one thing I guess we have done in terms of shining a mirror up to each other is when we say to people, to our colleagues, look, we could do a cataract operation this way or we could manage someone with schizophrenia this way, the, the, the whole range and variation of healthcare actually comes to our service in that sense because you'll nearly always find someone doing something innovative somewhere. So in the sense that the future's already arrived, we have hundreds of case studies, some of which we've managed to put in the paper, where the future is already happening. The, the tragedy is that it's not happening systematically. So we're very good, and the BMJ is particularly good at this, is giving awards to each other for outstanding <laughs> behaviour. And that, that's great, and that's a very necessary part of motivation and highlighting best practice. But we should also be calling out those people who are not doing these things. It's very nice to put people on on pedestals. That's great, and it, it's very important. But actually, we've got to we've got to say, look, if they're doing it, if it's possible to do this in Rwanda or 
or Rio de Janeiro or or Beijing? Why has it not been done everywhere? And mm. I think that that's one of the issues about the, the the history of improved quality in healthcare. Whether you're talking about safety or carbon reduction, is that we're very happy to look at it being done well elsewhere. We're quite good at innovating. We're terrible at spreading and universalizing it. And I've always said that you know when McDonald's finds a faster, cheaper way to make a healthier, tastier French fry, it'll be in every McDonald's in the world within a week. Now that、mm. simply would not happen in healthcare systems because they're much more politically and culturally diverse. So when we, even when we do find other ways to do these things, we've got to implement them extremely quickly because the the clock really is ticking. Yes, Renny, did you want to come in on that at all? Just to add to David's excellent response is, you know, thinking about how we can incentivize、uh, decarbonization and low carbon um, uh, options is another way, right, to accelerate this. So, being able to, for example, integrate this into payer systems,、um, and similarly、uh, allowing those types of Um, interventions and policies, thus to be able to sort of further catalyze and accelerate implementation, and so that's why we really try to think about what could be done, kind of exactly within healthcare sector and without and outside of, I should say,、uh, because again, there's multiple ways to tackle this problem.、Uh, but as long as we can place health as a central driver and recognizing that decarbonization, as as、um, David's been saying, you know, is, is clearly central to having a high quality、um, healthcare system with appropriate access for、uh, to all,、um, with optimal costs, then you know that has to be、um, something that thus sort of infiltrates into to all aspects which、um, align with that decision. And one、mm. of the ways, just to emphasise that point, Duncan, one of the ways in which one of the I think one of the strongest points in the paper is the line which I think、uh, highlights what Rennie's just said, which is highlighting those interventions where financial and health incentives are aligned. That's an incredibly important principle, and, and taking that one, even one step further. We have to remember that most, and we say this again in the paper,、um, most healthcare systems monetize illness. We were essentially making money out of treating illness. We are not making money. We're not monetizing health. We're not. Very rarely do you see systems where, when health is improved, people get paid more. You you know very well there's a management. Dictum that says follow the money. If you want to change a system, follow the money. So we have to give attention. We absolutely have to give attention to what are the financial incentives, and these are these are in a sense another set of co-benefits where it's financially where we financially incentivize climate action. Where even if you didn't subscribe to the climate agenda, and of course you'd be mad and unscientific not to, you would still be saving money. So aligning, and and I think one of our th- hypotheses in the paper is that another reason the healthcare system ought to step forward, step up, stand up, speak up, is that by leading, there are more co-benefits, financial and otherwise, in the healthcare system than probably in any other system, where there are a lot of trade-offs which have to be navigated. There are so many win-wins for us. It's irresponsible of us not to act visibly, ambitiously. 
on the front foot. Mm. Now, when you talk there about following the money and uh, incentivizing um, some carrots and some sticks, you know, there's a certain amount that individuals need to do, but it's often the leaders within institutions that need to actually set some of those things. Now, the NHS, um, as you point out in, in the article, has done well on this and has had good leadership from the top. Do you think um, that is because of that, um, because of that leadership? Uh, and what does that mean for other um, health systems that are much more fragmented in the way that they operate? Yes, that's a good question. My reading of it, my reading of leadership in general well, first of all, leadership doesn't just happen at the top of an organisation. It's very important at the top, but it's not only at the top. We can't always just wait until our leaders say something. I think one of the canny aspects of leadership, certainly in the NHS, is that the people who run the health service here do actually listen to staff intentions and, and the willingness of staff to act. Um, and by giving a lead in all the in all the declarations um, made by the NHS, the one really powerful thing I think it does for staff at the sharp end, being an ER physician or a porter or a procurement manager, is it legitimises action. A lot of action has been going on under the radar anyway by people who feel moved, people who are, are taken by the data, people who realise that there's a moral imperative. But but leadership can give it official sanction that this is normal, that not only do we turn a blind eye to you being innovative, but we expect you to be. And ultimately, we will regulate you on it and financially reward you on it. So it's moving it into this sort of, this is not only normal, but it's expected. And ultimately, one is obliged to do it as a, you know, just like we're obliged to do lots of other things as part of our duty of care to patients and populations. So, so Joe, just by leaders saying this is important, we expect staff to do this, that sends out tremendously important signals to staff in the same way as if we commit to buying renewable energy, 100% renewable energy as a healthcare system nationally, that sends out an important message to markets and markets depend on messages from big forward anchor organisations who are guaranteed buyers of their products. And energy is a very good example of that. Rene, what do you think on, on leadership? And as someone who's in the States, um, perhaps you have a, a, a different take on that. Well, I think as the uh, the figure that you previously noticed comparing countries uh, shows that we have uh, we are a huge part of the problem here in the U.S. and so thus have an enormous opportunity uh, to uh, move our healthcare systems forward. And obviously, we you know our system is different in the sense that these different activities are all occurring uh, at institution levels, um, unlike the NHS, which can make sort of sweeping decisions uh, that will thus affect you know the entire country. So I think that, you know, first off, right, that their leadership from a federal level, uh, for example, uh, can actually set forth and again and incentivize and accelerate action that all of the healthcare institutions um, can thus follow. And so, yes, of course, I mean, leadership and policy is, is important. And, you know, I just really want to reiterate what David said. And, you know, that's a fact that, 
you know, we talk about sort of that triple bottom line in the paper around social and health improvements, economic performance and environmental impact. And I think, you know, as for example, as a clinician, right, working in a hospital, you know, whenever this is talked about, I think it's often just viewed as the environmental impact and that that is the only piece. And so, you know, the increasing recognition of the economic performance benefits, as you know, we've continued to stress and the social and health improvements. I mean, I think that that aligns ever so clearly with our drive as clinicians and through all of the healthcare system, again, independent of what your role is from environmental services to radiology, you know, our goal is to do no harm. And so when that's um, actually integrated into the very fabric of a institution, that it sets forth kind of why we're all doing this um, and aligns with the mission that drives us to go to work every day. But I also want to really reiterate, too, that the grassroots movement is just as important. And so for um, especially in you know institutions and in countries like the U.S., where maybe this isn't happening at the speed that it needs to be, that it's sort of on us as clinicians advocating for our patients to truly move um, uh, leadership to, to act. Um, and I think that is you know, fundamentally important in helping them to see these connections. Mm, and um, what we do know um, motivates lots of clinicians is, is the sense of professionalism, um, you know, more so than perhaps uh, what their management think. So I, I wonder about that as uh, almost making, you know, thinking about the, about your work's carbon footprint. Uh, uh, do you think it's a professional issue? Well, I think if you are, if you look at the royal the lead that the royal colleges have made in this country, and I think. The same would be true of medical associations stateside and around the world. I think presidents and boards of royal colleges have been very quick to sense the the feeling of members. And I know that we in this country have a, the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, which has been extraordinarily powerful in against again, in normalising these activities and these sort of water fountain drink conversations amongst professionals. As you say, as part of our professional duty, not as a nice thing to do on the side, it is part of our professional duty. And there's an extraordinary amount of work has been done through universities, through introducing to curricula as a standard part of the curricula. Uh, in educating physios, nurses, doctors, other professions allied to medicine. And I think we we will, we should see quite quickly it becoming a routine part of curricula um, as this, and assessed as such by general nursing council, general medical councils accordingly. Mm. And one thing I'd add too is that as clinicians, and you we sort of mentioned this previously that, you know, we've quickly become sort of overburdened, right, by all of the tasks that are set upon us, many of them administrative. And while slightly different for me in the emergency department, I know a lot of colleagues who work in outpatient uh, practices, you know, and they have to try to churn through multiple patients in a day. And, you know, there's all these time pressures and administrative pressures. And I think for, you know, many of us, as you look at burnout that's been occurring throughout um, uh, medicine and sort of, you know, healthcare, that that really seeks to, to highlight that there is a, you know, a fundamental disconnect often between what our daily practices are and the reason that we went into medicine, like what it is that actually drove us to pursue this path. 
And I think being able to reconnect and integrate some of these, um, you know, fundamental missions, which I would argue, you know, again, decarbonization and tackling climate change for that sake of our patients and to have healthcare systems that aren't disrupted can begin to sort of, you know, integrate back in the very th- mission, I think, that many of us, you know, uh, were driven to follow uh, to go into medicine in the first place. And so just to be able to connect that back in can actually, and incorporating that as part of our professional practice can help us uh, remind ourselves of why we do this. One of René and David's co-authors is Ed Maybach. I also managed to talk to him about the messaging around this on harnessing the wish of clinicians to help their patients and how to keep this conversation relevant when COVID has superseded almost all doctors' priorities. Yes, um, my name is Ed Maybach. I'm the director of the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. To what degree do healthcare workers actually feel that this is their job, not only to decarbonize their own work and the work of their institutions, but to help broader society decarbonize as well? Um, and it, it's sort of an open question. We, we uh, many people, many healthcare workers, do understand the connection between um, sustainability climate change and, and human health. Um, many of them, certainly the, the National Health Service is incredibly committed to doing its part to clean up its act, but it's still a larger question, un, a larger unanswered question, to what degree do health professionals see the, uh, feel a responsibility to help the rest of us, the rest of the world, clean up our act. Um, and in this paper that, that is cited uh, in, in our um, our. Um, British Medical Journal paper, um, the you know we interviewed uh, healthcare workers in a healthcare system here in the U.S. Um, and we posed that question to them. Uh, you know, to what degree do you see the connection between sustainability solutions and health solutions? And to what degree do you feel like it is your responsibility or your opportunity to to help play a role in in bringing about change in the larger society? And I'm I'm happy to report that there's a really strong sense among healthcare workers, physicians and others, um, that yeah, sure, we, we absolutely need to clean up our own act because our act is not particularly clean at the moment and we can make incredible headway, but we also have an opportunity to help help educate the broader public and, and policymakers about the connection between climate change and health, between sustainability and health, and to convey what we already understand, which is that that sustainability solutions are health solutions. So we can get a, a classic win-win out of this deal if we as health professionals are willing to use our trusted voices to help convince policymakers and the broader public to come along this journey with us. You very handily in this um, paper sort of list in different clinical areas, um, the different sort of contributions are towards carbon and some of them are obviously directly within um, an individual clinician's control so you know uh, for example if you're an anaesthetist there are drugs that are particularly um, their carbon equivalent is really high and you can swap out of them if you're perhaps a, a respiratory doctor you know giving people 
uh, powder inhalers instead of um, the, the ones with propellant in. You know, those are things within clinicians' control. But there are big areas of this, things like, um, you know, the pharmaceuticals, for example, the, the contribution that they manufacture or the manufacture of the equipment that um, uh, clinicians use, uh, which are one remove. So how do you feel um, an individual clinician, healthcare worker can put pressure on, try and affect uh, those those sort of domains that are linked but not directly under their control? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think my response is that, that change begins at home, right? I, uh, an individual clinician can only have so much influence on... Um, the, the carbon footprint of, of his or her um, practice or his or her hospital. Um, but they do have, every healthcare professional does have a certain um, moral position um, in, that can greatly leverage the, the impact of their own individual action. In other words, you know, as a clinical practitioner, um, what they can themselves do directly to reduce carbon footprint is one thing, but the influence they can have on their broader organization, that be it the National Health Service in the UK, or for example, one of the large integrated health systems here in the United States, Kaiser Permanente, um, when their health providers become advocates for organizational change, that is a wonderful way for them to have a much bigger impact out, you know, to, to convert their concern and their willingness to take action into a much bigger impact. Because if, if um, health providers feel strongly enough that to convince the National Health Service to decarbonize its operations, um, that is really you know, dramatically gaining more leverage on fundamentally the problem that we're trying to solve. And if the National Health Service steps up, um, that helps the entire nation step up. Um, and if an entire nation steps up, that helps the entire world step up. So really the moral authority that individual health providers have is, I would contend, their, their greatest asset in helping the world decarbonize because they are one of the few, we health professionals are one of the few professions anywhere left in the world that is universally respected and trusted. Um, so when we make the case that climate change is not just a threat to plants, penguins, and polar bears, but it's a threat to people, and that as health professionals, um, we're going to do our part to make sure that we're minimizing our contribution to climate change or maximizing our contribution to climate solutions, that then becomes a way to inspire uh, and enable other sectors of society and leaders in society to rise to, these, to this opportunity as well. Mm. Um, I mean, my questions were probably quite gloomy there, um, maybe reflecting the state of a uh, lot of stuff that's going on in the world at the moment, but you, um, you sound quite uh, optimistic about this. I think the odds are long of limiting the warming to two degrees or less, ideally 1.5. Um, but there's no, <laughs> there's no uh, other option of giving it our best shot. Um, and, you know, there have been very few instances of global cooperation on anything. 
And, and yet here we have an opportunity for global co cooperation in order to keep, limit the warming to two degrees. Um, and there is no more, there is no um, profession better suited to lead that global co cooperation than the health professions. Um, and it's because we are, we're, we're used to working across boundaries, you know, uh, health professionals are health, the health profession is one of the few professions where this whole notion of national boundaries is seen as completely arbitrary and not in the least bit helpful. So if there is going to be um, the kind of global cooperation that is necessary to limit the warming to two degrees, I really do believe the health professions are, are where that cooperation is going to, to start. But I want to come back, Duncan, to, your, to the very first question you asked me, which was about um, you know, the fact that we're in a, a pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic right now, and, and that, has, that has the potential to put decarbonizing healthcare on the back burner while we struggle with a much more proximal need. And on one hand, you're absolutely right. You know, health systems around the world are struggling with uh, keeping people alive and, and keeping the, uh, the, the spread of the disease limited. Um, but on the other hand, it creates incredible opportunities because business as usual has been disrupted. And when business as usual is disruptive, disrupted, it points to us that some of our assumptions our operating assumptions aren't necessarily true. So one of the points we make in this paper is, two of the points we make in this paper is one, the more we can deliver quality healthcare, the more we can keep people well, um, and keeping people well is a great way to, to use fewer healthcare resources in the future. Um, and then secondly, the more we can limit moving people around to actually seek and, and have healthcare delivered to them, um, that can actually also be a wonderful way to um, help squeeze carbon out of the, the healthcare delivery system. It was only six months ago that none of us believed that we could minimize travel associated with healthcare delivery or even associated with, um, with healthcare education and, and continuing medical education. We just assumed we had to fly in here and there and everywhere in order to learn the latest and greatest from our colleagues in the field. And I think now, six months in, six or seven months into the pandemic, we recognize that assumption is not correct. We don't have to get in an airplane to learn the, the latest medical and, and public health, medical therapies and, and public health interventions from our colleagues. We can do that through Zoom meetings. We can do it through professional meetings that are 100% virtual. And that, as I said, the, the crisis created a real opportunity because it showed us the limitations in our own thinking and the fact that we have, uh, we have ways of improving um, what we do without continuing to dig the hole deeper, the, the, uh, the climate change hole deeper, if you will. You've been listening to Rene Salas, David Pension, and Ed Maybach talk about their analysis, a pathway to net zero emissions for healthcare. And that's now published on bmj.com. For more on the health benefits of tackling climate change, I've put a link in the podcast text, which if you follow it, will lead you to this analysis and many others. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back next week with more talk evidence, looking at testing and asking why we're so good at doing research on drugs and vaccines, but so bad at examining all of the other measures which we're currently using to control the pandemic. 
We'll also have a deep breath in, this time about coughing children. How can GPs tell what's COVID and what's not? That's all available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. So until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.